Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Uh, I'm Tyler. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm David. I'm Tyler. I'm Tyler. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. If you're in our Zoom, um, sometimes I am Tyler. That's uh, true. Um, no, I'm uh, I, I'm David. Uh, that's Tyler over there. I can't uh, see him right now, but uh, I'm trust uh, I trust that he's there. Tyler's turned his video off, which is fitting for this episode. Um, I think this is the first BP movie, BP movie Journal ever that will be entirely one sided. Yes, but I can't tell you, Tyler, how happy I am about that. Not for hmm. self indulgent reasons, but because. You and I were talking recently on an episode, and um, I think it was on our snobbishness episode. I can't remember mm-hmm. about like your need to watch something to talk about in the journal, even when we have a profile coming up. Yes. And so the fact that you don't have anything to talk about makes me think you're doing some preparation for our upcoming profile episode. And that uh, makes me very happy. So that's why I'm happy to be doing this episode where I'm just talking at you about movies you, uh, I will say you are correct. That's fantastic. That's so exciting. Um, and I'm very excited about our, uh, upcoming profile. I watched a really great movie last night that I won't be talking about today. I will be talking about five movies that I've seen since the last time we did one of these, uh, starting with one of the movies of the year, according to at least one critics organization, the movie of the year, uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's drive my car. Uh, this is a three hour long, um, Japanese movie, uh, that it feels weird to like talk about a movie. I feel like everything that's in the every generally anything that happens before the opening titles, you would say doesn't count as a spoiler, right? Well, the opening titles to drive my car come 40 minutes in. Oh boy. <laughs> it, it, it has an, it basically has, you're watching an entire movie and then about two characters and then, and I am going to, because I've, I've gone ahead and looked up enough of like synopses of this movie that everyone is just talking about this. So okay. I feel fine saying it, but if you're especially allergic to spoilers, I guess skip this, but uh, you think you're watching a movie about two characters and then 40 minutes into the movie, one of them dies. And then the f- opening credits start and it jumps ahead two years and the remaining two hours and 20 minutes of the movie uh, is, is just about the, the, the surviving member of the married couple. Um but yeah, so you've got a uh, 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 a married couple who seem very much in love, and then there's some infidelity, and then while the guy is still processing that pain, she very suddenly dies of like an aneurysm, mm-hmm. and then we jump ahead two years, and 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 uh, and he's um, been hired to direct a play for a, a some sort of cultural festival in Hiroshima, so he's uh, staying in Hiroshima. He's brought his own car, but the festival, for liability reasons doesn't want him driving himself. So they hire a driver to drive his car. That's where the title of the movie comes in. Um, uh, But basically what I, what I said in describing the the prologue about how he's still processing the pain of this infidelity when his wife dies, that to me is the, the, the engine of the movie that he is still dealing with two years later, still dealing with, two very specific types of pain 
that in some ways work together and in some ways are at odds with one another. This, this hurt that she caused him. And then the grief he feels at her, at her absence at the same time um, is, I, I think it's in, um, I have to look at, look up the, the, uh, the actor, uh, Hidetoshi Nishijima in his performance. I think you can gather that this is roiling in, inside him, but it's a very even keeled performance. So much of the movie, there's a part in the movie, a uh, beautiful, very beautiful scene where one of the people from the festival asks him how this driver they've hired is, is doing driving his car. And it's the kind of question that you would say, Oh, she's great or whatever too. Right. And he goes on this, like almost like this monologue being very specific and praising of the way that she drives and the way that he can work while being driven because she drives so gently and smoothly that he forgets that he's even in a moving car. And I think that's uh, almost a bit of self-commentary because that's, I, I've mentioned multiple times this movie is three hours long and if that's, that, that could be daunting to you, but in a way, you know, sometimes a three hour long superhero or action movie can feel long, even though it's filled with stuff happening. This is a very quiet, even killed movie, but it has such a precise sense of rhythm mm. and cadence that the three hours for me just flew, absolutely flew by. Um, and there's, there's more that I uh, could say about, uh, 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 about it it's it is the kind of movie i mean you know i mentioned um nishijima uh tokomayura is the uh the the driver and then there's also one of the main actors in the play that he's rehearsing uh is played by an actor named masaki okada but this is there's i've said this before on this podcast that like when you're watching a movie and all of the performances are so universally uniformly fantastic Mm -hmm. like it almost, I almost feel like it takes away from the actors for me to say like, clearly the director is doing something right here because um, everyone is so great in this, in, in this movie. Uh, I can't, I I can't praise it enough. I don't know if I'd put it at the top of my list. Like, was it the New York film critic circle who named it? uh, I think so. Movie of the year. I don't know if I'd go movie of the year, but uh, would not be surprised if I'm talking about this movie in my top 10 uh, come March when, we, when we're doing that because uh, of the late Oscars again. Uh, all right, moving on to um, Edgar Wright's second movie of 2021, Last Night in Soho. Yeah. Um, the movie, it's... Have you, you haven't seen Last Night in Soho yet, right? I haven't. I okay. Dis, despite some some negative reviews, I'm still interested. Yeah, I definitely think you'll you'll like it. I mean, it's um, as far as if I'm doing um, like a Edgar Wright ranking, I would say it's not quite up to the Cornetto trilogy, but it's definitely better than Baby Driver. Okay. Um, but the movie that I kept thinking of, not, not an Edgar Wright movie, and a movie that, given that this is like a sort of uh, psychological thriller or sort of Jello-inspired um, movie, um, it will be it might make you laugh to think that the movie I kept thinking of is Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, they are both movies, and if you if you'd seen if you see both of them, that actually won't sound crazy. It makes perfect sense why you would think of those two because they're both movies about people who romanticize a certain era, yeah, and then learn 
something and you know owen wilson's character learns that uh just because he romanticizes the 20s in paris doesn't mean the people who lived there were like happy they were also longing for some imagined past whereas last night in soho is um about the idea of uh, thomas uh is it thomas and mckenzie yeah yeah, thomas and mckenzie's character um idolizes swinging 60s london uh and then when she gets to get a glimpse of it she uh finds that like any time uh it uh was full of predatory people and uh there would there were there was a seedy underbelly and and uh of course as is true for most of the history of civilization it was especially hard for women um uh, at, at that time and, and and so she learns all of that but through in this psychological thriller almost like i mean there there are parts of the movie that are just straight up horror uh, as as well um and it, yeah it, i'll definitely be talking about it multiple times when we do our second annual needle drops episode it, that mm. won't come as a surprise to you it's a great movie of course it has uh some some great music in it the one thing i'll say that i think took me out of it and i hate to say this because I've been a fan of hers, but I think I've gotten to the point where I figured out what Thomas and McKenzie's thing is. And I might've had my fill of it. <laughs> oh. You know what I mean? And, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Can you describe what is her thing? Um, the, like that she's, I feel like all of her characters are so full of emotions inside, but everything comes out as a tiny, like soft. Sure soft you know almost a, a whisper way of of talking and that was it's been that was so powerful in leave no trace um and i feel like even though it works for the character here just seeing her do the same thing that she i've seen her do, do in this um also in jojo rabbit also to some extent in in old um i'm just kind of like i don't know uh, <laughs> uh, uh i'm I don't want to say I, I, I have, it's for some reason on this podcast, I'm always like willing to like be so dismissive and critical of a director, but I always feel bad criticizing actors. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm with you on that. And I wonder if it's because they're because of the auteur theory. I'm like, well, this is all direct, the director's fault also because actors are like more vulnerable because they're more visible. You yeah. know, I always feel bad about it, but, um, especially a younger actor where like they're still finding out who they are as a person uh and as a performer yeah so yeah i I try to cut them slack but i think that is also something that happens with younger actors is they they find their thing and it seems to be working and it's only it's it's usually as they get older that they really start to challenge themselves or be challenged by directors or whatever and it sounds like that's what's happening here yeah i mean i think the um a perfect example of that an actor i've come to really like even though i feel like i haven't seen him in anything in forever but that's true of a lot of actors because the pandemic but uh, ryan gosling when he was like a you know uh young heartthrob or whatever he was always yeah. just like oh i'm so pretty but i'm so troubled and, like furrowing his brow and like i've, <laughs> I've got secrets like, like murder by numbers and yeah uh, united states of leland and um uh, believer the, the believer yeah, yeah it's another one um and i feel like he definitely got to a place of uh you know i want to try different things and and i think um uh and i people like the movie but i still feel like we didn't 
just generally give enough respect to first man. <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah. I, I think is, is really good. And he's really good in it. Um, not being able to do his charmer thing, you know, cause right. the character's not really charming at all. And often is very taciturn. Um, that's clearly, but that's clearly uh, we're now we're on a Ryan Gosling podcast. Um, that's clearly one way he's tried to challenge himself is by taking roles in like drive and only God forgives. And then yeah. also first man where he talks very little. That's, yeah. that's like a, a, you know, if he were doing the, large amount true to the five obstructions thing. That would be one of his obstructions. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, like for some people, I guess it depends on when you found out about Ryan Gosling. Uh, for some people, that's his thing. And him being, oh, smart that's true. Is, is the novelty. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, all right. So moving on to, excuse me. See, <laughs> this is the problem with me doing all the talking is I have no, like, place to cough or burp <laughs> while someone else is talking um all right uh moving on to guillermo del toro's nightmare alley a movie i was very much looking forward to and very much did not disappoint the only thing that disappointed me okay because you know listeners you've you've won this argument tyler listeners weirdly like when we talk about our <laughs> fantasy award season yeah i have kate blanchett for best actress and i have got to unload that because that is not a leading role and it is not even the most prominent supporting role, which is definitely Rooney Mara. So, um, I don't, as good as Kate Blanchett is in the movie, I think the, I don't think she's going to be getting a lot of awards for the category that I have her in, unfortunately. Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's beside the point. Nightmare Alley, um, is, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I was going to say Guillermo del Toro almost never, I was going to say he never disappoints, but then I remember Pacific Rim, which I watched twice. I gave two shots to Pacific yeah. Rim and I didn't like it either time. Uh, but uh, I can't remember who, uh, who, what, what critic this was. Now it's driving me crazy, but I remember reading a review of welcome to Marwin mm-hmm. in which, um, someone described Robert Zemeckis as like one of the last of like he and Steven Spielberg were like one of the last of this crop of directors who could really think in cinema. Yeah. And I feel like that's true about Robert Zemeckis. Um, but saying he was one of the last, I think is not true case in point Guillermo del Toro. He, he is in that uh, to me that like Spielberg Cameron, um, uh, Zemeckis type of range of like making film cinema, like cinematic art, you know, yeah. that is, um, uh, unique and yet populist in a way, sure. but also challenging in a way, because his, you know, think about what, you know, it, it was a, people said it as like a joke at the time, but it is really a, astounding that he took, a movie with as weird a storyline as the shape of water and as dark and violent a movie as the shape of water and yeah. made it into the like feel good Oscar favorite. Like it felt like the obvious choice for yes. the Oscars yes. that way. And and so nightmare alley is another uh, movie that is, it is pitch black in its view of humanity. And yet it is still 
a grand big screen or entertainment. I'm so glad I saw it at the DGA. So I saw it on a great big uh, screen. I did the thing, you know, when I was younger and I'm not sure if this has happened to you to, to my, my seating preference in theaters has changed. Mm-hmm. I used to be in the same way. I was a back of the bus, back of the classroom kid. I used to be a back of the theater person. Uh, now I like to go as close up as I can without losing any of the right. Uh, if I, if I'm so close that I have to literally move my head to see both sides of the screen, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, and that happens sometimes out of necessity. I saw bird box that way at the AFI fest. Cause that's just where I had to sit. But, uh, I'm glad I sat what I did, like essentially like third or fourth row center for nightmare alley, because it is that kind of huge hmm. experience. Um, uh, every, you know, it's a two and a half hour movie that, uh, in a very different way than drive my car, uh, uh, flies by it's intensely episodic. Um, I mean, there are like a number of the big names that, you know, are in this movie are completely gone after the first hour hmm. because it's, it's, it has this complete, this, this very episodic, uh, uh, structure. Um, but it's also very, so it's very noir, it's, but it's also very Guillermo del Toro in the sense that he still has this, these horror roots, yeah. you know? So like it's, you know, it's a noir type movie, but when someone gets, when someone gets killed, they get like fucked up and then you see like, <laughs> you know, someone's face caved in, like there's a shot of, oh there's some really, uh, uh, really impressive, um, like makeup and prosthetic, uh, type of type of work. And I love, uh, I love that this is a movie that is going to get um, enough attention that I think some, I, I, you know, it's not just going to be people like you and me seeing this movie. Like this is going to be, a, I, I think a mainstream movie to, to a lot of people. And I love that they're going to get some like <laughs> gorehound type stuff, but also because Del Toro is such an artiste, I don't think they're going to like find it, out of place at the same time, the same way that shape of water has like a cat being, uh, decapitated and it has fish sex, you know, like it yeah. has all kinds of weird stuff, but it f- all feels it's so, it's so pure, pure in expression. Um, uh, that it all, it all feels like, Oh, of course this is what's happening in, yes. in, in the movie. A hundred percent. That yeah. is, that is actually what I was about to say is that he, he has such a, grasp on all of these elements of filmmaking and the way they all play into each other to create a world where yes this fish man can have sex uh with this with this woman uh or really you know and and any number of things in something like crimson peak and not only do you accept it but it feels as though it was inevitable yeah uh and you're like well yeah yeah, it's i'd be disappointed that didn't happen yeah uh, so I, yeah, I loved nightmare alley, even though again, like it's view of humanity is not at all, even in the least favorable. <laughs> all right. Um, this episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets with Noom. You get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. 
Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Speaking of movies about humanity, I saw Germany's entry, uh, uh, official um, Oscar submission, uh, Maria Schrader's I'm Your Man, um, which stars Dan Stevens, who is yeah. British, but um, this is a German movie. He's speaking German uh, pretty much the entire movie. He does speak a little English and some Spanish and some Korean. It's like, he's a robot. I, I don't know if you know if that's the premise of the movie, that uh, he's a like a this uh he's a prototype of a like uh life partner type of robot that's supposed to fulfill all your needs and and then the uh main character played by Marin Eggert is um uh a scholar and academic or whatever who's been considered one of the experts of the world who's going to try out one of these things for 3 weeks to see if it actually um works and if it philosophically or ethically is okay um and if if my explanation of the plot was clunky it's the same way that the movie itself mm. is clunky at the beginning i did definitely i had definitely had a problem at the beginning with with characters saying like well you are this and that's why you're doing this and it will be three weeks that is the timeline of this movie uh experiment um <laughs> <laughs> it, it has that kind of feel as it goes on i think it um it does take the philosophy it's not it doesn't i was i was expecting like you talked about pop psychology on a recent episode uh i was expecting like pop pop philosophy or you know um I, I think it does take the emotional weight and the ethical weight of this seriously my main problem with the movie i'm your man is just it's the opposite of maybe it's cause I had seen nightmare early the night before it's the opposite. It's so uncinematic. It so feels like, you know, the thing with the game of the tour movie is every single thing that you see or hear in the movie is a choice that he made. Right. And this feels like so few choices were made in terms of like everything was just like, just the blandest, like we'll set up the camera here. Cause that'll catch enough of the action and we'll put lights here. Cause that'll light enough of the action. And it's just all sort of, uh, functional and not really well thought out. And I think that I've been talking a lot about long movies that feel short. This is a movie that's only a hundred, you know, it's a normal movie length, but it feels long. I think because when movies aren't for me, at least when movies aren't cinematic, they, resist my ability to to enter into them and so um i i never forget that i'm sitting in a movie theater you know um and so the the time passes more slowly so uh go ahead i think that it suffers from having come out after marjorie prime and her and blade runner 2049 like just given the 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 subject matter do you think that it it's hurt by much better movies that explore it in a more thorough way. I know that it's not I, all, you know, it's, it's, no, it's a robot situation. It's a different thing, but yeah, no, I, I don't I mean, I don't, I, I think the audience is different. Okay. Um, so uh, I, de- I definitely thought about her and Marjorie prime. I didn't think about Blade Runner 2049. I probably should have, but I definitely thought about her and Marjorie prime while I was watching the movie. Also like only to you and I can a movie have been hurt by Marjorie prime, a movie that no one saw. <laughs> I just and, mean in, in regards to you. I know that you really yeah. like that. Oh yeah, it was on my top ten list uh, that year. Um, 
but uh, no, I don't think I don't think that's the issue. I think if the movie were a more uh, considered work of cinema, it would uh, have worked much better. I don't think outside of the early exposition, I don't think the screenplay is that is that bad. I think the performances are, are good. It also stars um, Tony Erdman herself, uh, Sandra Huller. She is the woman from the robotics company or whatever who's uh the i don't know she's like she's like the robot so- social worker essentially okay. <laughs> um anyway uh and then finally last movie on the list just last night i watched the new paulo sorrentino movie the hand of god and i uh really liked it I, I, you know paulo sorrentino has made uh, movies like the great beauty which i loved and youth which i really uh liked and earlier stuff like il divo uh and then the last one he made or the last one he made that i saw was laura which i didn't like l-o-r-o i think uh um because that uh, laurel kind of felt like well i'm paulo sorrentino i make these like darkly surreal movies about like life in italy or, or Italian society today. So obviously I need to make a movie about Silvio Berlusconi, right? That's like what I, it felt like Paolo Sorrentino saying like, I guess I got to do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that was, um, uh, uh, it, it felt labored and, and, uh, uh, half thought out. Um, but I'm glad, but, but, but the reason I bring that up is like, it gives me the temptation to say like, Oh, Paolo Sorrentino is back, but the hand of God while still having some very Sorrentino touches with that little, like those, those, uh, like big symmetrical grand, like mm-hmm. shots with sometimes somewhat surreal, uh, things, uh, happening in them. Uh, there's a great shot of the boy's mom, like, uh, at a, like a family, vacation reunion the thing she does we learn is she juggles oranges and everyone loves it and uh um so it suddenly becomes this very like beautiful shot of this woman standing in the middle of a row of trees juggling oranges while one of the other men is just going like "Ooh," and then like it becomes like and it sounds funny but it becomes like otherworldly and, and beautiful there's there's some still so what i'm saying is there's still some sorrentino touches but this is his i guess his belfast or his roma this is his yeah. like uh, a movie about his own childhood. This is his own coming of age uh, story, um, which this one, I won't spoil what happens, but if you look up Paul Sorrentino's early life, there's a major huge thing that happened uh, mm. to his family. when He was 16 and um, the movie is kind of bifurcated by that. Like it literally is almost exactly at the halfway point that uh, everything changes. Um, and I found the movie very uh, touching. I think he's, he's like such a tongue in cheek type of filmmaker too, though, that even, even for this sometimes very heavy material, he's still like, there's a self-awareness a self, like a self commentary. Like, um, it's, uh, comparing Sorrentino to Fellini, like obviously the great beauty is his La Dolce Vita. Uh, and so this being like a movie about a childhood is clearly his like on record, uh, and he knows that and Fellini gets mentioned in the movie, but it then focuses way more on this other director who, um, I, I was not aware of named, uh, Antonio Capuano, uh, a director who was working, uh, in the 
nineties and, and into the, the two thousands who actually becomes a, a character in the movie at, at, at one point, but I've never seen any of his, his, his movies. Um, Sacred silence from 1996 seems to be kind of his, the one that comes up the most when I Google him, but um, I've never seen any of them, but uh, again, that seems like that's probably true. Maybe young Paul Sorrentino was a big, was like taken with Antonio Capuano. Um, but it also feels like him intentionally like, uh, like invoking the Fellini thing because he knows everyone does that with him. Right. And then saying, no, this other thing instead. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, uh, I think I understand why Sorrentino could be like off putting because of that, like self-awareness, I think a little bit maybe. And, and he's a little satisfied with himself. Like, you know, when I talk about, having big beautiful images in his movie i'm sure he's like yeah you're right they are they are like that's what i do i'm very good at it he does seem yeah. like he has an ego and i i think some people might find that uh off-putting i i don't i'm uh always uh quite taken by his movies and the hand of god is no exception